I walked into church on Sunday, November 13, 2016, thinking it was going to be just another Sunday worship service. Little did I know it was going to be a, change, a day that would change my outlook on ministry forever. It was an election year. And the church had much chatter about the upcoming election, and I thought it would be like any other election. There might be some hurt feelings, some strong opinions, but we get through it. Boy, I was wrong. We had a mother of two teenagers who grew up in our church. She was adopted through the adoption agency that was next door to our church. Um, her parents had been committed members of their church almost their entire lives. We had buried both of her parents in that church, her mother, just the year before. She had spent her entire life from zero to her mid-40s in our church building. And this is important to know this background for what I'm going to tell you next. She'd been very outspoken on her political views in church, on social media, and those sort of things. And that Sunday, her political wishes did not come true. She showed up to church anyways, though. She showed up knowing that there would be some other Christians she had known her entire life who had opposing political views. And they'd be at that service. Apparently, they rubbed her nose in it a little bit. That week and that Sunday, she left the church that Sunday, taking two other youth group families with her, one of them being the daughter of our longtime preacher, who had also attended church there her entire life. And so as we followed up, seeking to, to, as leadership, what happened? What is going on here? The word that got back to the elders and the ministers is the line that was maybe the hardest for me to hear. She said to us, I cannot commune with someone who voted for Donald Trump. And this is the point that hit me. We've got a problem. We have got a problem. And I thought, oh my goodness, our church has a problem. It's us. We're messed up. We're broken. And in the coming months, we would hear from other ministers who would say, Oh my goodness, we're having that same problem too. We're having people leave. What is going on here? And so, in preparation to survive another election year, we have to talk about, as Christians, what it looks like to live out our faith in an election year. And so I know what you're thinking. Oh my goodness, I just survived the holidays with my family talking about politics, and now I'm going to show up to Sunday and my preacher's going to talk about it? Let me put you at ease a little bit here. Here's what I'm not going to be talking about. My goal is not to tell you how to vote. I think you should vote. And in a little bit, as we look at some church history, you're going to see how radical of an idea that actually is and rebellious in churches of Christ. My goal is not to endorse any political party, any candidate, and I'm not asking you to subscribe or take a stance on any political issues or ideology. So at this point, you're thinking, so what is there to talk about? Actually, there is something much more important to talk about. And here's what it is. How do we love God on an election year? How do we keep our love for God here and everything else underneath that? How do we love our neighbor 
an election year, especially when our neighbor might have some views that we don't agree with. Or when it comes to church, how we live out the teaching of Jesus. In John chapter 13, by says, by this, everyone will know you are my disciples by the way you love one another. How do we realize that we're uh, citizens of the kingdom of God? And how do we keep that allegiance above all other allegiances in life in election year? And so my hope is that as a church, as a body, as the body of Christ, we can handle talking about hard things. Now, if you were to ask people on the street, what are the two hardest things to talk about? They would say religion and politics. We talk about one of them every single week. And you know what's crazy? If you haven't been to Bible class, you need to experience it. We don't always agree with each other. We see the Bible differently. We have different stances. That's one of the beauties of Bible classes, to have, to see the different perspectives, to see uh, what everyone's thinking in regards to one passage. And you know what? We come back in here a few minutes later, and we worship together, and we break bread together, and we hear the scripture proclaimed together, and we walk out of here fine, loving each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so my hope is that we can do the same thing in regards to politics, but not only that it wouldn't just be happening here, that we would learn how to handle these difficult conversations so that we could interact with our families wisely, so we could interact with people in the community wisely, that we would be able to handle these things that are really difficult for us as a nation, for us as a community to talk, to, talk about. So... This brings me back to the story that I just shared with you. Obviously, it's an example of not being able to handle politics and conversations about politics very well. And here's the easy temptation, I think, in the story I shared with you. It's to dismiss the perspectives of the lady that I shared and her feelings and the other families that went along with her. Because it's really easy in your head to be saying something like, oh, well, she's a Democrat. Of course she would think that. And in 2016, the research would actually agree with it. And so while it might be an extreme example, what is much more frequent is to be talking with your fellow believers in church about politics. You think you agree. You think you all see eye to eye on everything. And maybe you disagree on a few candidates. Maybe you see a few different political issues a little differently. And then the temptation is like, well, how can they think that? The temptation is to go around, you know, to be the gospel. Well, did you hear that so-and-so actually believes? And it can be hard for us, even if there's just this little bit of a difference in our thinking. Furthermore, I need to bring some research to your attention. We have talked in recent years about the decline in church and local church, and there's a dirty little secret in there that we don't often articulate. In fact, in our church, it was Tim Masterson who was the first to articulate this as someone in our church to me. And the realization is this. If you were looking to classify the people politically who've been leaving the church recently, this is a trend since about 2020, it's not the liberals who are leaving, leaving. It's the conservatives. And let's not make 
you know, we know we tend to lean a certain way in this church. And we need to understand this. See, according to the research in the book, The Great Dechurching, it says this, conservatives are twice as likely to leave the church as their liberal counterparts. So as this sinks in, we need to talk about what's the goal of this series? Why am I talking about this? See, in recent years, in the recent elections, it's not the liberals and the conservatives who are losing. It's the church who's losing. And we got to do something about it. And so this is the last thing I want to be talking to you about, but I am convicted that if we're going to hold together, if we're going to be the church, it is something we have to talk about. My hope is that you would come into this series with your hearts open, realizing that we have some real issues in Christianity, no matter which way you lean politically, and that as a country, as a church, as the body of Christ, we can come together peacefully as we address these issues. So let me continue to try to put you at ease. Let me give you an outline where we're going with this series. Today, I want to look at a brief history of church and state. I want us to talk mostly about how do we live wisely in an election year. Next week, I want to look at the polarization in our country and what can we do to overcome and fight against that polarization. And in the final week, I want to talk about election anxiety. And if you're going to be here one week, be here that week, because I'm going to preach to you the most hopeful sermon I can preach to a Christian. Okay? If you can't find hope in that, you can't find hope in anything as a Christian. But... Uh, And that's it. Just a three quick, brief, three-week series. And then we're going to go on and move on to something a lot easier, the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, maybe it's not easier, actually. So before we really get into this, can we pray about it? Let's pray. God, we come before you more in need of you than ever. You know the challenges we are facing as a country. You know the challenges we are facing In the church, we come before you seeking to keep our love for you above all other loves in our lives. Forgive us and convict us of when we fall short of this, God. God, I pray for this country as we wrestle with another election as your people that we make wise decisions that honor you. Guide us as a church to love each other well, even when we might not see eye to eye on political issues. Help us to be an example of our community as, as to how to navigate these differences in healthy ways. Thre- strengthen us, God, to love our neighbors even when they might be the polar opposite of us. Most of all, God, make us like Jesus, our Prince of Peace. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. So I want to spend about two minutes going over 2,000 years of church history. For almost 300 years, the first Christians were heavily persecuted, uh, both religious and politically. They worshipped King Jesus instead of King Caesar. And so that put them at odds both religiously, but the biggest thing was politically with those around them. This led to major conflicts, many deaths. So um, the really only power that the early church had was their martyrdom. Their example of what they believed in displayed to many. And that all changed when the Roman emperor Constantine made Christianity the official religion of Rome. That was about 300 years after the birth of Jesus. And this had many advantages. 
the less, less persecution being the primary one, uh, the other advantage being able to spread the gospel, a very good advantage, but it also had its disadvantages that we don't talk about very often. See, the problem is Constantine didn't always make the most Christian decisions, right? And it led to this really weird dynamic and this debate that we still face today. The question is, how as Christians do we live, advocate for, and interact with power? What does this relationship look like? So for almost 2,000 years, the Catholic Church has these well-documented abuses in countries in Europe. Kings would make the church take sinful actions, and sometimes the church would use its power uh, to, to perpetuate these uh, sinful actions. If you think people fight over theological or political issues now, Google the Reformation, okay? They were killing each other over theological differences. And so something had to change. And in, in fact, it did, and we'll get to that. But when you talk to, to uh, atheists in, in Europe, one of their biggest rejections of the church has little to do with Jesus and more to how to do with how the church interacts with power within their country. Interestingly enough, this Christmas I'm watching the new Wonka movie with Silas. It displays what's going on here. The bad guys in the Wonka movie are the Catholic priests. Okay? Those are the bad guys. It shows and it highlights this distrust that we see uh, in Europe today of the church, maybe even more so than Christianity. So what changed? Well, America, this idea of separation of church and state, it was revolutionary, not because it was the freedom from religion, but it took away the power dynamics of having these two things and entities connected to each other. They both could work in the same environment, but the hopes was there wouldn't be this same kind of power struggle. And so this brings us to the start of the Restoration Movement, where Churches of Christ came from. In about uh, 1790, uh, uh, Christians sought to come together. So Alexander Campbell, one of the two founders of the Restoration Movement, had this to say about politics. In his theological text, The Christian System, published in 1839, he stated that the reason republics are a blessing to humanity and the government officials in a republic like the United States and that they were better than kings was because you could get rid of them sooner. Amen to that one, right? So that was his advantage. But I think most interesting is the generation that came after Barton Stone and Alexander Campbell. It was a guy by the name of David Lipscomb and another guy by the name of James A. Harding. James A. Harding grew up in Alexander Campbell's church. We know these guys today because they founded universities. Lipscomb University in Nashville, Tennessee, which bears David Lipscomb's name. Harding University in Searcy, Arkansas, Susan Smith's employer, which bears the names of James A. Harding. So why do I bring these guys up? Because these guys, maybe more than anyone, had some of the most outspoken political stances that carried forward in the roots of the Restoration Movement for almost a hundred years. And it's interesting, um, 
because they believed and promoted the idea that Christians shouldn't vote, that they shouldn't participate in politics, that they shouldn't hold public office. That was the norm. I think it's hopeful, helpful to bring this up because I tend not to agree with it. I tend to have a, another stance. I tend to think that we should. But for, for almost 100 years, they would be like, how dare they interact with politics like that? Those guys would be rolling over in their grave if they saw how we interacted as in the Church of Christ with politics today. So with all this background, thanks for hanging in there with me and staying awake. I want to bring you to the text today. I want to focus on the words of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 10, uh, Matthew's gospel, Jesus is sending out the 12 into the world to share his message. And he gives them all these weird instructions as to what to do. But I find these words helpful for us. Matthew 10, verse 16, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. What is going on here? Well, I think we need to relate to these words, and I think we can. I think there's a word for us, because Jesus sends us all out, too, in the Great Commission. We're to go out into the world sharing this message, and sometimes when we go out into the world, we feel like sheep among wolves. I mean, literally here now in Colorado, right? But the next part's the weirdest part. Shrewd as snakes and innocent of do as doves. What a weird metaphor Jesus is using there. First off, snakes are the bad guy in the story. Genesis 1. Well, why are we going with the bad guy? And snakes are gross, too. So there's two good reasons. Like, what are you doing here, Jesus? And do you think any of the disciples were like, uh, hey, the snake's the bad guy, Jesus. What do you, I, don't, I don't think any of them had the courage to say that to Jesus. And then what's this part about doves? Doves are innocent. I know they taste good. But uh, otherwise, I don't know what Jesus is saying here. So I want to break down these two metaphors and how I think what Jesus is teaching is very helpful for us this upcoming year. First, what does it mean to be shrewd as a snake? Well, in our plain English, I would explain it like this. Street smarts. This street smarts as we go through and interact with the world. I think practically it is very useful to have these street smarts to realize how politicians might be using us. So I want to go through a couple case studies, uh, one on candidates, one on stud, uh, uh, um, issues, on how we can use this, how we can um, ha have this metaphor that, or this, this guideline, this shrewd as snakes, how we can live out this metaphor as we go through our faith. Because here's this classic quote, you've probably heard it before, that gets at the heart of what I'm trying to say. Religion is regarded by the common people as true, by the wise as false, and by the rulers as useful. Why do those politicians find our religion useful? That's where I think we need to be shrewd as snakes. So let me give you this case study by looking at a few candidates in the last election. On January 20th, 2021, I'm watching the Biden inauguration because after everything that led up to it, I'm like, is this really going to happen? Just had to witness it for myself. I'm watching in a church 
with four other ministers, okay? And we're sitting there, and we keep hearing these references to God. There's a Bible reading. Biden places his hand on his Bible, the family Bible we come to learn. We, we hear uh, a prayer. We see a, or they sing a Christian hymn. And one of my fellow ministers blurted out, this is like a glorified worship service. Now, you have to understand, I grew up in Colorado Springs. Okay, the only thing worse than Satan in Colorado Springs is a Democrat. Okay? We're like, what is going on? All the other ministers had a similar upbringing to me. And so I'm ashamed to say, we're like, is Joe Biden a Christian? And so one of the ministers had to Google, is Joe Biden a Christian? Well, we found out he's Catholic, so to some Protestants, that might be worse than being an atheist. But we're like, okay, he, he, he does profess faith in God. And so here's the question that we wrestled with as ministers the rest of that day. Why did Biden have all those references? Was it just part of the political ceremony and the combination of the, the roots of faith in our country? Was it Joe Biden's faith? Or was he trying to have us have some certain image of him? I don't know. Give me the opportunity here to be equal opportunity offender here. On June 20th, 2020, Trump had the crowds cleared so he could take pictures with his Bible in front of St. John's Church. Why is the photo op important? Why is it important for him to be seen with a Bible in front of a church? Does it reflect his Christian faith? Or does it help him somehow? Or what about the chapel at the Christian University, Liberty University, uh, in, when Trump referenced 2 Corinthians 3 and all the students started laughing? Why? Because we know in Christian circles, it's 2 Corinthians, but we just put 2. Was it just a slip? Quite possibly. I, I, Lord knows I slip enough, up enough when I'm uh, preaching. Maybe he, he just slipped up. Did it mean that he didn't know his Bible well? I don't know. I'll leave that to you for you to decide. But I want to give you these two examples to talk about this teaching. As Christians, when we hear a candidate reference God or reference the Bible, the temptation is to go, wow, they're such a great person, right? We go from liking them as Christians, to loving them. We can tell ourselves, oh man, they're just so great. It's so easy to fall for, right? Shrewd as snakes. Why are they doing that? That's what I want to challenge you to think because remember, to the politician, religion is very useful. So I think if we're going to be shrewd as snakes, we need to ask ourselves, why did that politician use that biblical reference? Why did they talk about God? What are they doing there? And then we have to understand and reflect in our own heart. What is that doing to me when I hear this candidate that I might agree or disagree with politically? What does that do to me? And what does that do to other believers around me when they hear that sort of thing? I think we need to be suspicious of the impact it might have. 
Okay, you made it through one case study. Good job. Let's look at the other issues. I want us to look at how politicians use the Bible to argue political issues. Now, the case study that we're going to use today is immigration. No one has any strong opinions about immigration, right? Okay, there's some strong uh, opinions there. So I want to share with you a verse um, that I've seen shared around on Facebook at least three times. Now, no one in our church that I have seen has shared this. I want to preface that. I was terrified one of you was going to share it, and then I was going to have to take it out of this sermon. So just letting you know. Uh, this is what it says. The Bible says it all is the meme. Deuteronomy 28, 43 through 44. The foreigners who reside among you will rise above you higher and higher, but you will sink lower and lower. They will lend to you, but you will not lend to them. They will be the head and you will be the tail. So obviously this is a conservative uh, uh, Christian's view on immigration and what they should do with this. How would a liberal Christian uh, view and argue for Im uh, immigration? They would use Leviticus 19. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner resides among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself. For you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. So which side's right? I'm not here to tell you that. Keep your political opinions on this that you want. What I want to study and look at is how do we use the Bible here? And here's what's interesting to me. Both sides just take the Bible and say, oh, that's what it says. There it is. Run with it. But any mature Christian knows that you have to look at the context. And what does neither side do here? Neither side considers any of the context. They don't consider the literary context, the cultural context, the historical context. They don't do the exegesis work on the text. They don't do the hermeneutical work on the text to properly contextualize what it is that we should be living out. They just take the plain reading of the text and say, here it is, this suits my needs, the decision's made, there it is in the Bible. And that is a very dangerous game to play with the Bible when it comes to politics. Here's the truth when it comes to the Bible and politics. One preacher named Brian Zahn in Kansas City, Missouri, of course he's a Chiefs fan, he does a lot of work talking about Christians and politics and what does it look like, and I don't agree with everything he has to say, but this very honest quote of his stood out to me. On the left, the politics of Jesus, the apostles, and the early church do not fit easily into any of our our current political categories, so be aware of bringing Christian devotion to partisan politics. The theologian and scholar Walter Brueggemann puts it like this, the numbing impact of the Enlightenment rational, rationality on our view of the Bible has left us with the toxic options of progressive liberalism and reactionary fundamentalism, neither of which can allow the biblical text its proper work of wonder and deconstruction. That is the beauty of the Bible. So, Here's the bottom line of our case study. Here's what I want you to get out of it. When, Christian, or when candidates use Christianity or the Bible to justify their actions, 
I hope you'll be shrewd as a snake in that moment. What's going on here? You'll be asking yourselves. But what about the other part? Innocent as doves. Actually, it's uh, much simpler to live out, but it's really hard because it takes this word we call discipline. What does it mean to be innocent as a dove? Well, this is along the lines of loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's keeping your love for God above all other things. And politics, like nothing else, has the ability to make our hearts feel anxious. I feel it sometimes, right? I feel it, and particularly when it's an issue that I have strong opinions about, that I care about, and even more so, I feel it when the issue that I have such great desires about doesn't go my way. And so, how do we reconcile that? How do we work on that? And I have to tell you, actually, most of my work in the community is this one thing, is doing this. When I'm out at sporting events most often with my kids, when I'm out interacting with people, these are the kind of people I come across the most. There are people who profess faith in God, but man, they feel so anxious about the world. They are struggling. They don't like the direction. They are worried. They are anxious. And so I'm talking with them and help me come up with the diagnosis here. You're the doctor here. You're asking, okay, what's going on here? Well, what's the first symptom that we usually hear? Tons of media consumption. They are just consuming all this political media stuff. And I don't know about you. I feel anxious after I look at all that stuff. If I'm reading and watching and going through all that. So, okay, how do they counteract that? So then I start talking to them without prying too much. You know, what's your spiritual disciplines look like? You know, um, I, I asked them what they're doing to counteract this. Are, are they reading the Bible very often? It doesn't seem like they are. Are they spending much time praying or worshiping? It doesn't sound like it. It doesn't sound like uh, their, their spiritual life is thriving. When I talk to them about church attendance, it sounds occasional at best. Are you starting to get a picture of the diagnosis here? That they're consuming all of one thing and they're not doing the other thing. No wonder they feel so anxious. So here is my challenge for you as we go into 2024. For everything you look up politically, do the same thing spiritually. Okay? If you're going to watch the news, watch a sermon for the same amount of time. If you're going to read an article, read the Bible for the same amount of time. If you're going to have a conversation about politics with someone, have a conversation about spiritual life and about your faith. If you feel anxious, pray and worship often. Do these things. Test me in this and see if it doesn't change your blood pressure. Now, I know the temptation, the, the rebuttal that you already have to say to me in this. Tyler, I need to stay informed. I mean, all these issues, all these candidates, it's like a full-time job to stay informed and be a well-informed citizen. And here's what I'd say in response to that. I'd rather be tapped into the one who's really ruling the world than these others who are trying to rule the world. Amen. Okay? 
I'd rather be connected to the one that is working to solve the issues, whether we may recognize it or not, than the ones that think they have an idea how to do it. Okay? Because I could go down a wormhole of educating myself on all these things, and I could still never catch up. And my soul could be completely broken in the process of doing it. So I'd rather spend time with the one who knows it all than to be the know-it-all. That's how I feel when it comes to uh, loving God like a dove and having this pure faith. So we've covered a ton of ground today. Thank you guys so much for hanging in there with me. I want to give you a brief conclusion because of it. I know it is hard to talk about politics. Just seeing the references can cause all these emotions and feelings. Uh, since becoming your preacher, this is the topic I looked forward to preaching on the least. Let me be honest. But I feel very strongly convicted that every four years it's something we need to talk about as a church. Hopefully you can see that actually this really, when it comes down to it, has nothing to do with politics. It more has to do with our faith and church and how we're going to live those things out in the coming year. So keep your politics but more than anything, I hope you'll keep your faith. My prayer is that at the end of these three weeks, your faith will be strengthened. That our community's faith would be strengthened. That we would be able to talk about these things well. That we would be able to endure these things well. But more importantly, it's our chance to be this little light of mine, right? And man, when everyone's polarized, when everyone's anxious, when everyone might be taken advantage of, we get to let it shine. So that's my prayer for us today. Let's pray. God, I thank you, first and foremost, for being our God, for giving us true, profound, deep hope and love that we can trust those things more than all the uncertain things going on in this world. So God, forgive us. Forgive us when we've trusted too much in our politics, when we've put more faith in worldly things than we've put in you. God, give us strength as we go through this year, as we have to have hard conversations about what the future of this country looks like, help us to do so in love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Help us to do so, this in unity with each other. Knowing that we may disagree or agree with each other, help us to love each other well. Help us to be a light to our community, to our world, about how to live through this. But God, more than anything, I'm thankful for a greater perspective. A greater perspective we're about to see here in just a moment. A greater perspective on what really holds us together, our unity in you. So we thank you for Jesus, our King, our Prince of Peace, the author and perfecter of our faith. And it's in that person's name, it's in Jesus' name I pray, and all who agreed said, amen. amen. <clears throat>